podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Earlier this week, um, it was Tuesday morning, we, uh, some of the, some of the um, leadership team here at New Life Church, we, we, someone had opened up a cabin to us up in the Woodland Park area and said, hey, why don't you use it whenever you want to? And we said, sure, we will. And so we, we went out just for the day on Tuesday and um, kind of made it sort of our, our off-site retreat. We spent a good portion of the morning kind of praying and, and then the rest of the day really just talking about stuff, the future of the church and evaluating some things and praying through some things. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, but we started out the day, uh, as I said, you know, saying, hey, everybody just go find a, find a corner somewhere, either in the cabin or outside, and, uh, and just pray for a little bit. You know, take your Bible, your journal, and, and do that. And um, so uh, I, I went outside just because I thought, here we are, and Woodland Park is, you know, it's just so beautiful. And uh, I found a little tree stump, and I was sitting on it until it started to crack. I didn't know what to make of that. But... Uh, then I sat down on the grass next to it and just was just trying to be quiet for a little bit, you know, just to sit, not talk, not speak, not say anything, just, just to listen. And um, it was really a, a remarkable thing because as I sat there, I could hear the sounds of little bugs, you know, little buzzings, little zzz, you know. I could hear the leaves kind of rustling. I could hear the grass kind of swaying just a little bit. And it was just fantastic. I was like, oh, Lord, your creation, you know, this, here we are out, out in this place, how amazing, and I'm looking up, seeing the mountains, and, uh, and then all of a sudden I started hearing this beep, 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 you know, and I look up, and it's a caterpillar, a man-made machine called a caterpillar, you know, and, and this caterpillar is clearing some, uh, like a lot, and it's digging, and I, you know, for all I know, it's probably a good thing that they're doing, I, I don't know. All I know is that, that the sound of that caterpillar was interrupting the sound of my devotional time. And so here I am. I'm listening to the sounds of, of nature and the Lord's creation. And all of a sudden I hear this beep, beep, you know. And it was really, you know, sort of annoying. And, um, but, but as I sat there for a little bit and uh, tried to step out of the annoyedness and back into the state of calmness, um, I, I really felt like the Lord was saying, hey, hey, Glenn, listen, this is kind of maybe a, a, a message for you. Look at the sound of creation, the sound of nature. I sustain that. I sustain all of that. I am the creator and the sustainer. I sustain all of it. And then, and then here's the sound of a man-made vehicle working hard, trying to do its thing, and it's just noisy and obnoxious, and it's trying to... And it, it, was, it was almost like a convicting thing of saying, Hey, Glenn... Does the noise of your busyness keep you from hearing the sound of me at work? You know, and it was just sort of like, a, wow, okay. Uh, and, and I began to think about what, in what ways am I like the guy with the tractor or the, you know, the thing digging up, I'm cutting down trees, I'm doing stuff in the name of God or whatever, you know, and a, it's, it's progress, it's this, it's that, and I, you know, and it's all this busyness, but I, I, I couldn't help but think of the psalm, you know, that, that look, it's all, you know, why, why do the nations rage? Why do they rise up? Why all this stuff? Look, don't you know that the Lord sits on his throne and kind of laughs, you know? And, and I read 
I flipped over uh, to the psalm that I was going to pray that day, and it was a psalm that, that began with, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And, and as I was reading it, uh, it, it struck me that when the psalmist wrote this, you know, there um, really weren't atheists in that time. There weren't a lot of atheists. Everybody believed in God, God's, a God, some sort of God. So, so what's the psalmist say? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And, and it struck me that maybe to an extent there is, it's foolish every time we live as if there is no God. And, and, and so here I am in this time of prayer realizing that, look, God is creator and sustainer. And every time I try to labor out of my own panicked, frenetic sort of, oh, I got idea, that I'm living like a fool. Because I'm living like I don't believe there's a God who is creator and sustainer. Does that make sense to you? So I had this, you know, it was a really, really nice quiet time. But prayer does that for us. Prayer is, in a very real way, centering that when there, is, when there is time that we can stop and be quiet and pray, prayer has a way of bringing everything back in its right order, bringing everything right in its, back, in its rightful place. And maybe you've experienced this when you've been sort of cluttered or busy or whatever, and then all of a sudden you, you, be, you take a moment to pause and take a deep breath and you start to pray and you feel things starting to reorient and, 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 and everything organizing around the center of Christ. And you, you, you've experienced that, no doubt. Um, prayer, in many ways, kind of wakes us up to what's really going on. You know, when you stop, when you take this moment, and you kind of, whoa, all of a sudden you're more aware of something than maybe you hadn't been before. And it's kind of like, um, you ever woken someone up like in the dead of sleep, you know? Like maybe they've fallen asleep on an airplane or a car ride or whatever, and you, you jolt them, hey, we're here. <laughs> and they start, you know, like the words, that, the first words that come out of a person's mouth as they're waking up are, are always very funny, you know, because usually they're, they're realizing what's going on. They're trying to orient and say, hey, oh, wait, hey, wait a second, what's this? Or, or what's, what's best is when they're especially confused about what's really going on. You jolt them up and they think that they're uh, late for some other event and it's really it's not. It's a Saturday or, you know. Um, there's a great story of my wife when she was a, a little girl. Uh, I don't know how old she was. She was maybe six or seven. And her grandparents had taken her um, to like a, just a little getaway retreat or, uh, you know, at like a hotel somewhere and just to have a little fun time. And, and uh, she had wanted to sleep in their bed, and they said, no, she couldn't. She had to sleep on this other bed. And so anyway, she had fallen asleep on their bed. And then as she was, yeah, once she had fallen asleep, they started to pick her up and move her. And any of you who've had little kids, you've, no doubt had to do this, you know, sort of move them from where they wanted to be, where they fell asleep, to where you want them to sleep. And as they're moving her, Holly says, I know what you're doing, and I don't think it's very nice, you know? <laughs> like, and uh, <laughs> so there, there is this, you know, you all of a sudden become aware of what's really going on. Say, hey, I don't like that, you know? In a very different sort of way, prayer wakes us up to what's really going on. Paul in Ephesians 5 has already talked about, he's used this phrase, wake up, oh you sleeper. Look, you can see day has already come. And a few weeks ago, uh, in one of our, the, our talks in the series, I talked to you about how Paul is sort of telling us, look, live like it's day, even though the world around you is living in night. In other words, there's darkness, there's wickedness, there's evil, but I want you to live like the day is already dawning because it is. How do we wake up to that? How do we wake up to sort of seeing, wait a second, look what God is doing. Look, his day is already breaking. His dawn is already kind of rising. His 
uh, salvation is already coming. His day is coming to life. How do we live that way? I think prayer is how we live that way. And this is one of the, the, the remarkable things about this Ephesian letter. I'll read our text and then make a few remarks about prayer throughout this letter. In Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, Paul says this, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I have, if you can see this, I have pray, prayers, praying, pray, pray, circled in my Bible. And you can see five times in these three verses, Paul's hitting this hard. You think this is a big deal to him? Yeah. As he's wrapping it up, he's talking to them about prayer. But in fact, all throughout this letter, Paul has, prayer has been the context of it. Prayer has been the thing that's framed everything. Paul, in Ephesians 1, 15 to through 23, Paul prays for the Ephesians. You remember this? He says, look, I'm praying for you that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. I'm praying for you. Uh, in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, Paul himself is praying. I kneel before the Father in heaven from which every family derives his name. He says, I'm praying. And you have to wonder, you know, how did this look? You know, was he sort of dictating to Tychicus, you know, as he's in, this, uh, in, the, in, in prison and, and maybe Tychicus is a visitor and he's dictating. And you have to imagine the scene. I mean, what was it like? Was, was Paul sort of pacing up and down and saying this stuff? And all of a sudden he says, oh, and I'm praying for you. And Tychicus is like, uh, oh, the scribe, whoever, you know, should, should I write that one down? Okay, I'll write down the prayer too, you know. And here's Paul interweaving theology and prayer, prayer and theology. I love this because here's a lesson for us. And I know some of you are Bible students, and I just talked to a young man who's going off to seminary. You know, here's something to always guard. As much as you study, always let your study lead you back into prayer and let your prayer lead you back into study. For Paul, theology is not done in a laboratory where he says, here's me in my library and don't bother me and I'm just reading this. He can't help. He's talking about his most elaborate cosmic theology of salvation is in Ephesians 1 and 2. And yet he can't help but burst into prayer and break out into song because it's not just ideas to Paul. This is something for us to catch that prayer is what frames everything. Everything is sort of soaked in prayer. And he goes on, okay? Um, Ephesians 6, now Paul's urging them to pray. Ephesians 6, 18, the verse that I just read. And then finally, Paul asks them to pray for him. This whole letter is soaked in prayer. Can't help it. I'm talking about God. Oh, I'm going to start praying to him. I'm talking to you. I'm going to start praying for you. I'm talking about how you should be praying. Oh, and while you're at it, pray for me too. This is not sort of an add-on. Prayer for Paul is not like Coke and fries with a burger. It's not like, yeah, it's a nice side, but it's fine if you go without it. Prayer for Paul is part of the whole entree. It's all part of the meal. For him to know God, to love God, to love these people, to be in community, to be connected to this, pe- this church and these people, and to pray, to pray to God for them, to ask them to pray for him. It's all working together. Can you see it? Prayer for Paul is all wrapped up. I want to point out tonight just 
two specific things about this text, about those three verses, Ephesians 6, 18, 19, and 20. Just two main things, and we're going to break it down a little bit and talk about it and wrestle with it a little bit and see how it might um, nudge us and, and prod our hearts. And the first is this. Let me read the text again. Well, let me say this, and then I'll read the text again. Prayer is a reminder that God is at work. Prayer is a reminder that God is at work. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Let's take this first phrase in there. Pray in the Spirit. Now, for, for those of you who are from, you know, sort of what we'd call maybe a Pentecostal charismatic background, when you hear the phrase pray in the Spirit, you immediately think of a prayer language or you think of praying in tongues and all of that. And certainly from the way Paul uses this phrase in uh, his other letters, I think to the Corinthians, you could say that pray in the Spirit, at least part of praying in the Spirit, might involve that or seems to involve that. The way that he wrote it to the Corinthians seems like he used those phrases interchangeably. So there is an aspect of praying. To pray in the Spirit uh, It does mean to, to have this, this prayer language, it seems like, from some of Paul's writings, okay? But, there's, but it's a subset of that. There's something larger at work in praying in the Spirit. To pray in the Spirit is to be aware of what the Spirit is saying and doing. To pray in the Spirit is to say, okay, I'm praying, but as I'm praying, I'm being alert. Like he says here at the end of uh, verse 18, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the saints. Be, with this in mind, praying in the Spirit has, has wrapped up in it this idea of saying, okay, help me to pay attention here. God, you're at work. I know you're at work. I know before I got here, you're already here. You're already on the scene. I think there's something powerful about that. This, this phrase, stay alert, is the same phrase Jesus uses in Mark 13, when he tells his, his disciples, look, when the end comes, you need to stay alert. Stay alert. Pray in the Spirit. Be attentive to the Holy Spirit's work. I think it's incredibly good news to realize that before you get to a certain place or a certain scene, to remember that the Holy Spirit is already there. And let's say you're meeting with another believer and you're, saying, you're going to their house or their workplace and you're going to talk to them because they just called you and some major crisis happened and they're a mess and they don't know what to do and you're saying, okay, all right, I'm going to go over there. Is it helpful to realize that the Holy Spirit is already at work in their hearts and in their situation? I think it is. To realize that you're not, you know, I think in the old kind of language that we used to have, we used to say even about missions work, you know, oh, we're going to take Jesus over there, you know. Well, that, there's, there's a part of that that's true. We're taking the message of Jesus over there. That's certainly true. But there's another angle of this that, that maybe we sometimes miss, that what if the Holy Spirit's already at work trying to soften their hearts? What if the Holy Spirit's already at work trying to draw them and speak to them and call them? And what if when you show up, the first thing we need to do is say, what are you already doing, Lord? What are you already doing? What, in what ways are you working in, in these people's hearts? And like, how, how can I pay attention? I want to pray in the Spirit. I want to pray with an attentiveness to the Spirit and the Spirit's work. On all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. I love that. On all occasions, all kinds of prayers. Well, should we do this kind of prayer or that? Yeah, all of it. I love, uh, you know, when, when um, 
I was at college, was at Christian University, and so everybody's sort of experimenting with their own unique expression of, of uh, devotional life or whatever, and only to discover that they're not so unique after all, but everybody just needed to kind of flesh it out on their own. And so some people would say, well, I don't do a quiet time. I don't have like, you know, devotional time. That's not even in the Bible, quiet time, you know. I'm just always praying, you know. But the truth is when you're 19 and you're running between classes and sleeping in and staying up late and eating junk food, uh, praying all the time usually looks like, oh God, please help. Oh God, got an exam. Oh Lord, I didn't, you know. And so I, I, don't think, I don't think it's right to say either or. Well, either you have an hour of prayer every morning or nothing. No, no, no. I think all kinds of prayers in all, on all kinds of occasions. Remember that when Jesus' disciples asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Do you know the very first thing Jesus addressed? Location. He said, when you pray, go to your room, close the door. So there's obviously something about a prayer that shuts everything else out. Prayer to, yeah, so on those occasions, yes. But what about the prayer when we're running between events and we're, yes, on those occasions too. And, and but what about if we're really busy and we're like, you, you know, driving and the, yes, on that occasion too. But, but what about like when I, you know, I'm on my way to a, a really busy meeting and my, I feel like my boss is angry with me and I just don't know that, what if I'm going to be offended? And I, yeah, on that occasion too. On all occasions with all kinds of prayer. Why? Because if praying in the Spirit is about paying attention to God at work, then don't we always want to be aware of God at work? Don't we on all occasions with all kinds of prayer want to say, all right, Lord, this is a weird, this is a stressful situation. This is kind of a strange meet, but Lord, just help. Just help, you know? Yeah, that, that's cool too, all right? So it's all, it's all part of it. The next phrase, keep on praying for all the saints. Oh, I love this. The truth is, when you and I pray, we're never really alone. Because every time you pray, you're joining the company of the saints. You're joining the company of people who have gone before. Listen, one of the reasons I love, I've come to love over the last couple of years, praying written prayers. I know that's new for some of you. If you're not from a high church background. You're like, dude, man, why are we praying prayers that someone else wrote? You know, I, got, I, I got words. You know, I know what to say. I know you know what to say. That, that's fine. But there's something about praying a written prayer that there's a, there's a number of benefits from it. I won't go into it. But, but let me just say this. When you pray something like the Lord's Prayer, is it significant to know that followers of Jesus have prayed that prayer for 2,000 years? Oh, man. That when you say, Our Father, you're reminding yourself that you're not alone in this. You're not little bitty Christian with darkness surrounding you, even though you may feel that way. It's like, the, you remember that story in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah, and he's like hiding away in the cave, and he's like, Lord, I'm the only one who's righteous. I think we feel that way when we pray sometimes, right? God, I'm the only one who's spending time in prayer. And, I'm, you know, and, and, and Paul said, look, keep on praying for all the saints. Remember that you're part of a great company. It, and God, remember in the Elijah story, he, what does he say to Elijah? So it's like, you're not the only, there's like 400. There's a remnant. There's more. Go find them. Remember that you're not alone. Pray, keep on praying for all the saints. Every time we say some of these prayers or say the creed or say the prayer of confession, we're, we're reminding ourselves, you know what? I'm not the first one to come before God with a guilty conscience. I'm not the first one to stand here with, with a little bit of sh- with shame. 
I'm not the first one to stand here and ask for help. Praying for all the saints reminds us that we're not alone. But praying for all the saints also reminds us of how we're connected to one another. Listen, this, it, it, it's hard to underscore how big of a deal this was for the first century church. The fact that Jews and Gentiles were one in Christ. The fact that there was no division. That they belonged together. That was a huge, huge deal. Paul spent all of Ephesians 3 just about talking to them about how you're one family. We have one Father in heaven. Look, look, look. You belong to the same When we pray for one another, it helps us remember that. When we pray for one another, it helps us remember that, look, it's not just me and God. It's never just you and God. Every time you pray for someone else, it it makes you remember, wait, we belong to the same family. This afternoon, I had to break up two fights between my girls, you know, we're not a perfect family. Our kids do fight, you know. And, and, and it's funny to watch a five-year-old girl and a three-year-old girl fight because they punch each other, you know. And when I see the punch, they sometimes punch it. Not all the time. But when I see the punch, it doesn't look like it hurts at all. Like it's like, <laughs> and then, but then when I see the reaction, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, Mike Tyson just hit him, you know. It's like Sophia, Sophia went, <laughs> to Nora, and Nora goes, <laughs> you know. I have to call him in. Okay, girls, let's talk about this. Okay, who, you know. And here's dad mediating this. Why? Because they've got the same father. They belong to one another. And I think prayer is a sense of God saying, okay, you're upset at this person. You're offended at this person. Would you come to the same father and pray for that person and that person pray for you and remember that you belong to one another? praying. Keep on praying for all the saints. You may be a Jew and you may be a Gentile, but pray for all the saints. Remember that you've got the same Father in heaven. But to tie it all in with this first point, that prayer reminds us that God is at work. Praying for all the saints reminds me that the same God who's working in my heart is working in their heart. That's big. How many times Have we made a mess out of relationships because we just felt like if I didn't say that to them, then they were just going to, you know. And sometimes, look, confrontation's appropriate. We're going to start a new series next week called Sticks and Stones, and it's all about interpersonal relationships. (laughs) Woohoo, you know. There's room for that. I'm not saying this is a no confrontation zone. I'm not saying that. But how many times have we taken it upon ourselves to fix someone else? Right? Oh, my spouse, you just, I've got to, I'm, you know what? I've just got to just, I'm going to throw Bible darts at them every day and hope that one day they get it. Bible darts, you know, like, you, you don't do that to your spouses. Okay, that's good. <laughs> I've just heard of some people who do, you know. And we take it upon, I've got to fix you and I've got to change you and I've got, listen, you ought to, <laughs> And, and, and all of a sudden we say, wait a second, back up, back up, back up, back up. What if, before we attempt the, that approach, what if we knelt before our Father in heaven and prayed for them? And maybe in the praying for them, we remember, God, you're at work in their heart just like you're at work in mine. You convicted me. No one else could have, you know, I, I think for me, there's a lot of times, and maybe you don't ever experience this, but when I have kind of an epiphany about something, I want everybody else to see it too. 
You've never done that, right? But I, I do that a lot. And so I sit there, and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to convince someone, and I'm a persuader, if you haven't noticed. So, and I'm like sitting down, and I say, listen, you've got to, you know, and, 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 and sometimes it'll show up in a, in a blog or a thing, and, and my friends remind me, Glenn, nobody brought, nobody really like dragged you to that place. It was the Lord's work in your heart that got you to see things this way. I'm like, yeah, that's true. Maybe, maybe back off some of the persuasive confrontation. Maybe kneel before our Father in heaven and pray for all the saints. And that in the praying, I remember that God, you're at work in that person. You're at work in their heart. You're at work in their life. What if we could catch that? What if we could believe that? Secondly, prayer is a reminder that we are at war. This is an interesting idea. Prayer is a reminder that God is at work, but prayer is also a reminder that we are at war. In, the, in Ephesians 19, 6.19, Pray also for me, Paul says, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. I'm in chains right now. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I love this. Pray for me also. Pray that I'll be bold. Pray that I'll have the right words. Pray that I'll be fearless. You kidding? The fact that Paul's in chains is proof that he's been bold. It's proof that he's been fearless. What are you saying, Paul? I believe so strongly in the idea of the, the mutuality of ministry. That we minister to one another. That Paul doesn't take this ground here. I mean, he does say, look, I, I'm an apostle and all this stuff. He says, you know, he says that, but he's, he's putting himself on equal ground, not just to be polite or appear, the appearance of hum, humility, because he means it. Pray also for me. Look, I'm in chains. And I know I was bold getting up to the point of being in chains, but man, I sure don't want to lose it now. Pray also for me. Something about this mutuality of ministry to say, oh, I'm not just Paul, your teacher, but I just... You know, and I was, I've been thinking about that, you know, Jeff and I and a couple other guys have just finished up this Bible study that we've, we've actually been doing, a Bible study on Ephesians, even before we knew this, this series was going to launch. And, and we were talking about how I, uh, you know, I, I, I want to say that. I, it's true. I, I need as much prayer as you do. We all do. I had a day um, recently where I was sitting in my office after an appointment and just thought, I am in over my head. And again, it's that thing of like, yeah, I can't, I, I, I can't fix that. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do for that. And I, 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 you know, was reminded of this verse. Pray also for me. Pray also for me. I told Holly, you know, a couple days ago, I'm coming up on a stretch here of eight weeks, basically till the end of October, where between going to Malaysia and teaching like eight times in four days, flying home and teaching at the school of worship and the other internship thing, thing we have here and getting ready for the church's live recording, going to a conference in Pennsylvania, doing my own studio recording thing. Whatever. It's all stuff that I didn't mean to coincide to make this perfect storm, but here it is. And I, to be honest, like there are se- several nights where I'm laying in bed trying to fall asleep and I'm just, my heart is pounding. I'm like, oh. 
I, I cannot get this all done. You know, I've got to finish this article. I got you know, like, and I want to open up the laptop and like just write a few more emails. You know, I'm like pray also for me. Pray also for me. And I want you to know that because if we're going to be a real congregation on Sunday nights, which I hope that we are, that there is this mutuality, that there are ways that you help me and there are ways that I help you and there are ways that we help one another. Pray also for me. But why did I say prayer reminds us that we are at war? Because Paul is aware of that. Part of his reason for asking for prayer, part of his reason for saying, hey, pray also for me, is he's saying, look, there's stuff, there's forces, there's darkness, there's evil, there's evil, there's people, disobedient people through whom these evil forces are working, and, and it, it's opposing me, and I need you to, we're in this war. Paul is writing from prison, of course, and it's interesting to, to talk for just a moment about why he was in prison. Because I, I think without thinking about it really, we sort of assume that ancient Rome is sort of like communist, you know, when back in the day, communist Russia, maybe current day communist China. Whatever. We sort of have this impression that, oh, ancient Rome just sort of hated religion and was anti-Christian and all this stuff. Actually, the truth is, ancient Rome loved religion. They loved it so much, they wanted everybody to do, practice whatever religion they wanted to. Have a potpourri of religions. Let them bleed all over each other and let it make one little fragrance of whatever religious belief. So, okay, well then, what, what, what was their problem with Christianity? They had a couple problems with Christianity. One was that Christ, Christians prayed to a God that they couldn't see. We said, well, yeah, but so did Judaism. So did, so did Jews. That's true. But Judaism had this benefit of be, having been around for a couple thousand years. And so Christians show up and they say, we too have an unseen God. And, we pr- and they're sort of saying, oh, come on, you're a flake. This is, this is an unstable religion. So there was a little bit of skepticism because of that. Okay? But there's one big reason why Rome hated Christianity. Christianity was actually subversive to Rome's authority. They felt the subversion. In fact, in one of the chapters in Acts, it says, look, it says about the Christians, it says, look, these guys obey Jesus instead of Caesar. We can't be having that. In the, in the early part of the, of the second century, there's a famous letter that we have from a Roman governor writing to an emperor. It's, it's the letter from Trajan to Pliny. And Pliny is writing to Trajan and saying, hey, look, what do we do about Christians? And he basically is asking this question. He says, uh, what should we do? Should we arrest them? I mean, Christianity is technically illegal, but what do we do? And, and, and Trajan writes back and says, look, it is illegal, but it's a waste of empire resources to go hunting them down. Don't go hunting them down. That's just, we got, we got bigger fish to fry, so to speak. Fish. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> sorry, couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> those of you who've never seen an ichthus bump. Anyway, okay, whatever. Okay, so, so Rome says, don't, don't go hunting them down. We don't have time to mess with it. But here's what they said. They said, okay, listen. If you find that a Christian is creating a social or civic disturbance, arrest them. And when you arrest them, while you have them there, ask them to either renounce or deny Christ or to pledge allegiance to Caesar above all. And they knew that a Christian, many Christians, wouldn't really do that. And so that's when the persecution began, is when a Christian would be arrested, which is a lot of the reasons why Paul says, look, as much as you can, live at peace among all men. Don't go get yourself arrested here, you know. Try to have, be in, you know. But, 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 but look, when it comes down to it, Caesar is not our highest authority. 
Christ is. And think about this. You could say that in a nutshell, early Christians were persecuted not purely because of their religion, but because their allegiance to Christ and their fearlessness of death. What was the, be- what was the, 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 the worst punishment that Rome had in its arsenal? Death. Now, Christians didn't fear death. Why didn't they fear death? Because Jesus had been raised, and they believed they were going to be raised. So imagine a people who claims that they believe in a, in, a, in a God or a king that's higher than Rome's king, and imagine that when you tried to threaten them with death, they said, okay. <laughs> that's a problem. That's like if you had a child that said, listen, you need to obey, and if you don't obey, I'm going to put you in a timeout. And they say, all right. It's like, uh, quick new method of discipline, you know? Except for Rome, they didn't have another method of discipline. Where else do you go besides, I'll kill you? Okay. What do you do with these guys? Rome Rome was afraid of Christians because they had their number one allegiance to Christ as king, and they didn't fear death. They were, like Paul asked to be prayed for, they were fearless. Now, That, in a very real way, was a threat to Rome. They were a threat to Rome. Of course they would be a threat. Which government wouldn't view that as a threat? We've got this group of people here. We don't know what they're going to do. And if we try to rein them in, we threaten to kill them, and they say, okay, what do we do? Think of this. By being in Christ, by being part of the family of God, whether you realize it or not, you are in opposition to the systems and structures of this world. You are. You're set against it. You're set against it. And that's why, as much as I believe in getting involved in the political process and trying to subvert elements that are, that are not right and that are not righteous and trying to speak up for justice and against oppression, I believe in all that and we ought to do that and we ought to subvert, the, uh, you know, that, that's, that's wonderful. But realize that in the end, there's no system or structure of this world that ultimately reflects the kingship of Jesus. That one day, there will be a king who sets everything right. One day, there will be a king who reigns, like we talked about last week, puts on his armor and reigns against injustice and reigns against all this stuff. We know that's coming. Karl Barth, the famous Swiss theologian, said this, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Oh, man. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. In other words, prayer reminds us that we're living in opposition to the system's structures of this world. Do we pose a threat to any of those systems and structures? Do we? What do I mean by this? Do I recommend that we all go out and sort of be as obnoxious as we can and threaten, like that sort of this violence power thing? No, 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 no. The way the early church posed a threat is that they were just, they weren't afraid. They loved. Think of Paul in this Ephesian letter saying, Masters, be kind to your slaves because you've got the same master in heaven. Now that's, that's really offensive to our ears, and understandably so. But remember that for the first century, the key part of that phrase would not have been slaves. The key part of that phrase would be that masters 
are going to give an account that masters ought to be kind. It was common in public writings and in, in, in public literature at the time to talk about submission and talk about the subordinate paying attention or being, being submitted to the superior. All of that was common. What was uncommon is the other part of Ephesians 5 where he's telling the quote-unquote superiors that they're actually on level ground before the master in heaven. That blew it up. What was actually revolutionary is when Paul writes to Philemon and says, your runaway slave, take him back as a brother. That was, re- for us, that's not revolutionary. We, you know, we, we, we've, we've worked hard to, to, to come to that place. That's not revolutionary to us. But in the first century, 2000, that was revolutionary. That was subverting a system and a structure of injustice. Do you see that? Here's the church living out in a way that undermined and that posed a threat to a system and a structure that was evil and oppressive. How? By campaigning and, you know, like, no, 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 not by that. By loving. By saying that, look, it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter what your ethnic identity is. It doesn't matter what your national identity is. It doesn't matter what your citizenship is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. I, I, we, we all are equal before the Lord, and we need to, you know, this sort of stuff, the loving, the embracing, that kind of thing, and not in the cheap parody of it. I think the, 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 our culture's word for tolerance is a cheap parody of this. This is not what I'm talking about tonight. There's sort of the cultural idea of tolerance. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the idea of saying, okay, If we are the people of God, then let the church model that whoever is in Christ is in the same family. Think about that being the message of subversion. That maybe in a society, which it was the case for Paul, in a society that was so class conscious and so aware of ethnic identities and all this stuff, and all of a sudden they came to a Christian congregation, there's a centurion, there's a Jew, there's a Gentile, there's a, and they're all singing together. They're all breaking bread together. They're all taking care. Whoa! That's what I'm talking about. That as the church, we live out in this way of saying, if you are in Christ, there is no more division. There is no more divider. Which, by the way, do you know why? I'll, I'll be teaching on this in the adult Sunday school thing next week, but People always talk about, oh, Christians are cherry pickers with the Scripture. You know, it's like we, we, we like this verse in the New Testament, but we, we still eat shrimp. Or we still, you know, how come we don't follow the dietary laws, but we follow, the, the, you know, these laws and all this stuff. Can, can I give you in a nutshell which parts of the Torah fell away in Christ? It's the parts that distinguish Jew from non-Jew. It's, it's Simple. Circumcision no longer is an is a identifier that matters because there is no difference between Jew and Gentile if you're in Christ. The dietary restrictions fell away. Why? Because we don't want you to be sitting down at a table and realizing the differences between one another. You don't want to be sitting down at a table and someone saying, oh, well, you know, we don't, we, we don't eat that. We're, we're Jewish. You're, that fell away. Ho- specific holy days fell away, which is why the Sabbath was the one of the Ten Commandments that Jesus seemed to ignore. Why? Because he doesn't believe we should rest? No. But because Jesus was saying, look, the specific holy day that sets apart Jews from Gentiles, the specific holy day where all of the Jewish communities would shut down while the Gentile communities kept going, that stuff, I don't want those markers anymore. I don't want those distinguishing marks. I don't want those identifiers anymore. If you are in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Slave, no free. You catch this? 
This is what Paul is saying. Look, this is how we undermine the current of culture. This is how we undermine, this is how we rise up against the disorder of this world in a world that's, that's saying use people and use them for your own pleasure and use them for your own this and, and just as long as you can take care of yourself and just you know, do whatever you need to do to control and manipulate and you, you just abuse and you do all that stuff. Paul is saying, no, if we're in Christ, let's show a different way. Remember that we are at war, that we are meant to oppose the systems and structures of this world. Throughout the Bible, there is a picture language that's given to us about this theme. And it's the story of Babel and later Babylon. If you remember, what was the Tower of Babel? It was humanity's attempt to organize themselves apart from God. To say, we can reach heaven on our own. Babel represented that. Babylon, the nation, later on, all through the prophetic books, and, and especially in Revelation, becomes this, this icon, this picture of the systems, structures, societies of this world that have organized themselves apart from and against God. If you're looking for what, what does the world mean in this Bart quote, is the world like the cosmos, like creation? You know, I'm against creation. Certainly not. The world, if you were to write down a little footnote, you'd say the systems and structures that organize humanity apart from and against God. And it's that that we oppose. It's that that we undermine. If prayer is a reminder that we are at war, imagine this. That every time you take time to pray, you remember that God's way is counter to the world's way. Every time you sit in your car before you, maybe you're in the parking lot of your job and you're ready to walk in, you say, I'm going to walk in here today and there's going to be a lot of people trying to do whatever necessary to get ahead. Cut throat, stab the back, whatever. Make themselves look good, all that stuff. But I know that God's way is to consider others above myself, is to lay down. And so, Lord, I'm praying today. Help me to oppose that system in our culture. Help me to, to counter that current. I have a good friend who works at a bank and all the bank cares about is how many clients he clicks through. He, he sits down with each one and wants to know. He's not, he's not willing to hand out generic advice and get them to sign up for loans that they don't really need. These are the simple ways that we oppose the systems and structures of this world. So you know what? I, I'm in this job, but Lord, help me to not just do, I'm not doing it that way. That's a system that is totally not God's way. And so I pray today for help so that I can oppose that system. I wonder if we should ask ourselves this question. If we are not considered a threat to the systems and structures of this world, maybe it's because we aren't living in opposition to it. If you do not pose a threat to the systems and structures, if you don't at least in some way make a, 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 a system or a culture, a way of life sort of <laughs> nervous around you because of the way you work and live and love, maybe, you're not, maybe we're not living in opposition to this world. Think about that. 
Because prayer is not a private spiritual hobby. You pray privately, sure. But every time you pray privately, it's supposed to fuel you into this world, this living out there. It's supposed to remind you that God is at work, and it's supposed to remind you that we are at war. Not this, like, violent, brave heart, power, not that kind of war, but the war of, by which we fight with love, selflessness, sacrifice, and in doing so, undermine the systems and structures of this world. Think about that. That's a massive idea. Can we do it? I think we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I think this is why Paul's asking for prayer. He knows what a big undertaking this is. He knows that he's living in a day that values things that are very different than what he values. Pray also for me, that I may fearlessly proclaim the gospel, the message of peace. I may have the right words. Can we stand tonight as we pray? Really cool thing about Paul's request for prayer is that we have kind of a clue that his prayer gets answered. Later, Paul's writing to Timothy, who at that time is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done, and you too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Here's Paul forgiving. Here it is in verse 17. The answer to his Ephesians request for prayer is answered here. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But the Lord came to my side. I wonder if Paul's saying, remember I was asking for help. I said, pray also for me because I'm being opposed. But look, the Lord came to my side. So Jesus, we pray that for every one of us, let our prayers remind us that you are at work, that you're at work in our hearts, in our families, in our homes, in our children, in our spouses, in our friends, in our colleagues, in our workplaces. You are at work. Help us to believe it, to see it, to pray that way. And Lord, we pray that our prayer would remind us we're meant to live in opposition to this world. Help us to think of specific small ways that we can act in love and sacrifice and humility in a way that counters this world. God, for all of us, thank you that you, the Lord, comes to our side. The Lord comes to our side. The Lord comes to our side and is our strength. Tomorrow, the next day, the day after, the day after that. Thank you for it, God. Keep us praying for one another. Keep us praying for one another. Keep us praying all kinds of prayers on all occasions in the Spirit to be aware of you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Everybody said, 
Amen. Amen. Let's thank God.